Hey everybody, welcome to episode 97 of Tone of the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn. We talk pitching each and every week with the five-time World Series champ David Cohn, the research ace James Smythe, myself Justin Shackle, our terrific producer Dan Rourke with us as well. Let's get going here with the second half, guys. All-Star Week festivities concluded with the Midsummer Classic on Tuesday. That was a well-pitched game on Tuesday. The National League coming away 3-2 winners over the American League. Which pitchers stood out to you guys on Tuesday? Well, you know, I got to I got to throw some love to a couple of guys that have been on our podcast, right? I mean, recently Mitch Keller was, was we talked about what it would mean with him to make the All-Star game. Obviously, he made it. And uh even though he got nicked up a little bit, I'm I'm sure it was a great experience for him, but the guy who's really made the leap from a guy we had on last year, Josiah Josiah Gray, local kid from New Rochelle. A great guest we had on, really insightful, and really made a big leap in one year to the All-Star game and really has thrown the ball exceptionally well and, and really did himself proud in the All-Star game. Love love that pick. Uh, love those picks. I think the the pitching top to bottom was mostly really good. And in these All-Star games in recent years, it does seem like it tends to favor the pitchers, uh, especially when you have either – relievers just emptying the tank like Camilo Duvall or even just a starter who's pitching just their one inning and, and looks really good. Uh, you know, Zach Gallen, Justin Steele, you love to see guys who are on the come up like a gallon breaking out. And then there's someone like Alex Cobb who you know, 12 years in the big leagues and finally makes their first all-star team a little bit out of the blue. So it's always good stories all around and very impressive pitching top to bottom. Yeah. Love, love, Coney. Giving some some shout outs to our our former guests. Uh, Mitch Keller came in right after Zach Gallen. Uh, Josiah Gray looked terrific. I thought it was cool. Like you saw a kid like Josiah Gray, who maybe not the entire National Baseball Note audience has seen this season. What exactly he could do? So he was showcased early on. I like that, and I also like the order, the early order of the American League pictures. Like you had Garrett Cole start. Can't go wrong there with with that type of uh, pick there for a starting pitcher. But then right afterward, you probably had like the next two leading candidates of guys who were available to start for Dusty Baker. Nathan Avaldi coming in the second, Sonny Gray coming in the third. So the power starting pitching arms for the American League on full display right out of the shoe. I love to see it. Uh, the, the, the names on full display for the American League early on in this game. So we're going to touch on some of what we saw around the all-star events, maybe the Derby, a lot of the media session, anything that we took away from that. And then look ahead, look, it's trade season guys. Uh, the draft is over as well. All teams are focused on the trade deadline coming up. We'll get into the big news that the Yankees made just before the all-star break as they dismissed their hitting coach, Dylan Lawson. They've brought on Sean Casey to start the second half, so we'll touch on that as well. But let's get it going with the opener each and every week. David Cohn brings us something that is on his mind. David, what do you have for us with this week's opener? You know, I, I thought it was interesting, the All-Star game, you know, all the communication, right? A lot of a lot of players were mic'd up. We saw last year as well, pitcher and catcher. We talked a lot about Nestor Cortez and uh, Jose Trevino last year. I'm wondering in the future where this brings us, right? I mean, is there going to come a time where everybody on the field is mic'd up defensively to, in order to play better defense? All the outfielders can talk to each other. All the infielders can talk to each other. There's always going to be a little bit of a problem when the catcher is speaking to the pitcher on a mic, uh, whether the hitter can hear him or not. 
you know, that that's always going to be going to be something that to, to be contended with. But I love the idea that everybody's talking to each other on the field, keeping each other awake, keeping each other alive, positioning themselves defensively, just making jokes with each other, having fun. I, I love that that part of the game. Uh, potentially in the future. Um, I, I welcome that advancement on down the line. I'd love to see players talking to themselves and, and, and being mic'd up during the game for, for whatever reasons, entertainment, staying interested, staying alive, staying awake, staying alert, and also just for defensive positioning on down the road. I, I think it'd be a great thing to have in the game. Love like hearing it. it. I would love to hear like eight different mic pods going up for the uh for the sound engineer on the on the tv broadcast to to have to deal with that, that that'd be really cool yeah uh about 10 different people mic'd up at once but that that would be cool like that that is uh a deep insight on what we could you know w- what goes on on a baseball field during a given inning like chat it up let's go everybody out there everybody out on the field let's get some dugout mics too i mean that that could be interesting different feature where maybe you you get people on base you have some of these star players you know up on top of the railing let's hear what they have to say too as they're they're watching intently but uh but i think we're just continuing to see more and more progress with this feature on tv and it's really endearing right and i like i liked hearing uh mookie Betts and freddie freeman uh, a little back and forth uh early in, in last night's game and some stuff is a little hit or miss i don't know about interviewing like when Nathan Evaldi was mic'd up, I don't know about interviewing him while he's pitching. It's one thing like last year when you had Nestor Cortez and Jose Trevino, it was more like you were listening in on them talking to each other rather than him having to, you know, hold an interview while he's pitching. But overall, I love it. You think you gotta like have the, the right person if you're gonna try and do it with a pitcher on the mound? Because I remember like Alec Manoa doing it also last year. Like oh that yeah. worked, right? Like yeah. ah, Nathan Evaldi. You know, I feel like he is really locked in when he's on the mound and he doesn't want to deviate from that. So, um, yeah, I wonder. I wonder if it just takes the right type of pitcher for an exhibition game like this. But, uh, guys, let's let's spread out here for the entire All-Star Week. You know, you have Derby, maybe the, the red carpet showcase that they had before the game yesterday. If you want to pick something from the game itself, you could do that. The Q&A with the media. I think we did find out a lot of information there from some All-Stars. The entire All-Star Week, what is the best thing that you saw that best illustrated the state of the sport? I, I got to go with J-Rod's first round in the, in the home run derby. <laughs> I mean, my goodness. I still sort of wonder if they're going to tweak that format down the road. I mean, a guy hits 40-plus home runs, his first round probably should be the home run champion. I'm sorry. I mean, the, the hometown kid, uh, you know, I, I – Somehow you got to figure out a way to count all the homers hit out of the ballpark o- over several rounds, I guess. I don't know. Maybe I know a lot of people have talked about the format of the home run derby. I know Major League Baseball's heard a lot about it. It's become must-watch television. The ratings are there. They've filled out an entire night of programming with a home run derby, an exhibition, a home run derby contest. But to, to me, to watch a young talent in his home ballpark go off the way he did in his first round to me and just blow away the field. Uh, at least for the first round, was just unbelievable to watch. I mean, it was electric to to see that kid swing the bat the way he did in that first round. That was great to see. And 
a lot of times in the home run derby, the guy that steals the show or the guy who has the signature, you know, performance in the home run derby isn't the guy who usually ends up winning. Even back in 1999 at Fenway Park when Mark McGuire put on a show, he didn't win it. Um, he, or Vlad Guerrero Jr. in in um, in Cleveland when he had had that big opening round. Uh, Josh Hamilton and the and then when they were closing the old Yankee Stadium in 2008, kind of the same thing. So a lot of times it is that guy who who really steals the show, who doesn't end up lasting until uh, the championship round and, and, and winning it all. But uh, I'm going to, I'm going to stick with Julio Rodriguez because there was the, the frenzy around him being the, the hometown player getting into the all-star game and the crowd was great. I loved the seventh inning at bat between Julio facing Camilo Doval. And it was just power against power. Here it is. Hit it. 102, 100. 99 102 101 and a strikeout it was electric and you're and it was a, a tight moment in the game so the crowd is just thinking like hey let's get a big home run here and uh Doval came out on top but it was a great showdown and it's a, a showcase of great young players and great pitching the the pitching these days you know people wonder why batting averages are lower scoring is lower it's like you look you look top to bottom down to that National League and American League all-star pitching staff, and you're loaded with great arms. Yeah, I thought the Fox broadcast did a really good job from, from a technical standpoint, capturing like the moment for Seattle when Julio Rodriguez was coming up to hit. I mean, they did like a wide pan shot. I mean, I know we're getting in the weeds of TV production, but um, people hopefully realize how much Julio Rodriguez means to the, those Mariners fans. I thought I thought they brought it and captured it in nicely. Like you said, hometown all-star. And that was a fun battle. Fallon off pitches at 102, 101 with Duvall. And yeah, pitching ends up coming out on top there uh in that matchup. But that was a that I agree with you, James. I thought that was a fun matchup. I'm gonna go back to the home run derby. Adley Rutschman's home run derby performance hitting 27 homers in the first round he hits 20 left-handed and then he turns around and hits seven more from the right side so that had my attention throughout the rest of the derby I kept thinking about that I'm like we've never seen that like dude just flipped around during his break that was wild uh so so that is something that I kept going back to during the night of the derby so for me that's kind of a small example of how the athletes are just getting better and better as we move along yeah, with One, his dad pitching too. His dad was yeah. throwing a MVP as well. That was endearing to yeah. see that. And you knew that, I guess it was planned out. They were going to take that break and he was going to flip around Adley Rutschman's from that region, from the Pacific Northwest. So this was, this was a big event for him. It was pretty cool. I'm glad you picked that because I was I was thinking of that too. And it's funny because a lot of most switch hitters have, you know, their power side. And for Adley, his power side is, is more swinging left-handed. So it was a little bit of a surprise when you see him swing over to the other side and then he immediately starts hitting tanks. It was great. Yeah. yeah, that's the thing too. From the right side, those first few swings, I mean, he was locked in from from jump even after switching. It didn't take him too much time to get acclimated from the other side of the plate. People, more tone the slab is coming up. But first, I need to tell you about how you can hit it out of the park this baseball season with DraftKings Sportsbook. New customers can place a $5 bet 
and get $200 in bonus bets instantly. Plus, all customers can take a shot at bigger payouts with DraftKings stepped-up same-game parlays. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app, sign up with code SLAB, that's S-L-A-B, and new customers can bet just 5 bucks and get $200 in bonus bets instantly. That's code SLAB only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Massachusetts, call 800-327-5050 or visit gamblinghelplinema.org. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Kansas, call 1-800-522-4700. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, 21 or plus in most eligible states, but age varies by jurisdiction. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details and state-specific responsible gaming resources. Bonus bets expire seven days after issuance. Opt-in and 10-plus leg requirement for 100% boost. Eligibility, wagering, and deposit restrictions apply. Terms at sportsbook.draftkings.com slash baseball terms. I think the one that probably stole the show, though, guys, during the game last night were the chants for Shohei Otani when he came up to hit. The chants from T-Mobile Park in unison, come to Seattle. Just a terrific job. <laughs> he acknowledged it afterwards, you know, saying that was something that uh, he's never experienced. He admitted earlier in the week that he spent time in his off seasons in Seattle, like a total of four months over the last couple of off seasons. So the Seattle crowd showing Otani a lot of love. I guess as we look toward the second half here, a lot of trade discussions, a lot of trade rumors are going to be over the head of Shohei Otani. Yet he is going to be performing with those trade rumors swirling around him at an absurd pace because he is just destroying baseballs at the moment. So I'm wondering what is more likely to happen as we get going here with the second half. Shohei Otani breaks the American League home run record set just last year by Aaron Judge or Shohei Otani gets traded. What do you think? I have a hard time wrapping my mind around the Angels trading Shohei Otani. I mean, that is just the ultimate white flag. It is a pivot in their organization's history, how they do that, who they get back for really a half-season rental, less than a half-season rental, but even though it is one heck of a rental, maybe the best rental of all time in the history of of, of rentals. So I still I, I can't wrap my mind around it because for, for Perry Maniason, the general manager, for Phil Nevin, the manager, and really for Artie Moreno, the owner, who himself did a pivot recently when he put the team up for sale and then reversed course and decided to stay on board as the owner of the Angels. I don't know how they pull that trigger with their fan base. I don't know how they trade him unless it's just one remarkable trade that you can't turn down. Uh, you know, to me, it's it's the uh, their best chance as a future as a future of an organization is to re-sign Otani to somehow turn it around, make the playoffs, somehow get in, have some sort of a run in postseason, and then convince Otani to stay. That's the best course of action for the Angels. Convince him to stay somehow, some way. The minute you pull that plug, boy, everything changes for that organization for the foreseeable future. You know, you're talking about a massive rebuild there once you pull that plug. I'm not sure that they have the mentality to do that there in Anaheim right now. You know, between 62 home runs and the trade, I've been skeptical of the trade. I I also can't wrap my mind around the idea of Otani keeping up this home run pace for the rest of the season when he's already racked up 30 plus. 
So I'm going to go with the trade route, even though I don't know if it'd be the right move. I don't know if it'd be the right move as far as being able to retain Shohei. If you can pull it off and say, all right, well, we're going to trade you at the deadline, get this package back, but we are going to go all out to try and keep you. And if it's all, you know, like that, maybe I could squint and see that happening. I just, it is like folding up the tent, right? Coney, like you said, it's, I don't see how you can really press that button. And it really is just like tearing down the franchise. I know you could get back in the running and try and sign as a free agent, but you could still, how far out can you really fall out of the wild card race in the next couple of weeks? And you could still, you still need Otani to sell tickets and be the franchise player for the rest of the season too. And how does it look trading him in the sweepstakes to try and retain him long-term? Also, can you imagine if he kept the, like the home run pace going after being traded? Like that's (laughs) another layer to all of it. Right. Um, I'm, I, I guess I find it hard to wrap my head around the fact that we may see, uh, a home run chase where we go back to back years with players hitting 62 plus home runs in, in the American league. So f- I think that's a big reason why I would say I'd be more uh, or le- less shocked to see him traded, even though I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen or not. I am of the belief like, Hey, you, you come out of the all-star break, the angels lose, Hey, five in a row or so they, they admitted they're going to have to start thinking long and hard about what they do from a business standpoint. I really believe you got to take every single emotion out of it. Um, so the question that you weigh then, oh yeah, does it make sense for from a business standpoint for us to to trade a trade away Otani? It's a really tough position to be in. I'm wondering also what people like Artie Moreno and Perry Manazian were thinking, like when they were watching the All Star Game last night, and you see Shohei Otani getting showered with "Come to Seattle" chants. Like that's just one fan base right there, and that just so happened uh, because they were. In Seattle, like that could have happened. I don't know if it could have happened anywhere, you know, wherever the All-Star game was taking place. I think Seattle is a little bit special, but yeah, most places would have been showering them with similar chants. So I don't know what they're thinking at when they're watching the All-Star game uh, last night. And then his reaction too, uh, because he showed obviously nothing but love for Seattle in return. It's what you would expect from a player, but they can't make people like from the angels feel all too comfortable. I think that the first like 10 days out of the break, the angels play may force the angels hand in how they deal with Otani uh, in the weeks ahead. Uh, There was another player who made some headlines with his team. I think it's a little bit easier for the Cardinals to assess where they're at in their season and what they could be doing moving forward. But also if Nolan Arenado, who said, he wouldn't be shocked if he's traded by the Cardinals if he did get if he gets dealt here by St. Louis. Is that a little bit too extreme for a team that many people believed could win the division? There are parts where they can sell off, but do they have to go as far as entertaining trades for guys like Nolan Arenado? And dare I even say Paul Goldschmidt? What do you guys think? That one kind of came out of nowhere, right? I mean, yeah. uh, does Arenado know something we don't? Has he heard whispers within the organization? That's interesting. I mean, <clears throat> you make you kind of wonder, you know, you kind of wonder, everybody's talking about predicting that the trade deadline is going to be a bit of a dud because so many teams are interested in competing now. 
that with the expanded uh, postseason format, it's hard to know who's in and who's out. You kind of stay in it. 86 wins got you in last year with Philadelphia, and they rode that all the way to the World Series. So like like James said, you're never really out of it. So what kind of trades are out there? You talk about Otani. What about Mike Trout then? It's Mike Trout. I mean, if the Angels pull the plug, it's Mike Trout. Okay, if you're going to go halfway, you might as well go all the way, right? If we're going to trade Otani, let's, let's, let's really push the reset button here and really try to rebuild our organization. The same with, with uh, St. Louis. If you think something's broken there and you really need some pitching and there's not a lot of free agents out there and everybody's looking for starting pitching, which is what you need, then maybe you do need to sort of trade from a strength and, and try to rebuild your, your format or your organization and get rebalanced, so to speak. I guess rebalancing is uh, the, the proper word here. You know, um, St. Louis has got a bunch of outfielders. And when you talk about the Cardinals, you don't talk about Arenado or Goldschmidt. You talk about all those outfielders they have and trying to match up uh, with, with, with some pitching. And, you know, that's why we see maybe the Yankees are a match with the Cardinals in terms of pitching, some young pitching, whether it's Johnny Brito or, or, uh, you know, Randy Vasquez and some sort of a deal for one of those excess Cardinals outfielders. Maybe you you think more in those terms, but Aaron Otto, that came out of nowhere for me. I, I don't see him going anywhere. I still think that with him having four years left on his deal that he you could still expect him to be a key part of the next good Cardinals team, but they have a couple of notable starting pitchers in their walk years. Uh, Jordan Montgomery, Jack Flaherty. These aren't going to be, you know, Luis Castillo-esque, you know, mega deals, but they are useful starting pitchers who every team needs. And that's something where you could flip them at the deadline in a rental. And if you want to pursue them in the off season and bring them back, go right ahead. But I don't think it would, I don't think it really necessitates a full teardown in St. Louis the way a an, an Arnado trade would. Yeah, I think that would represent an extreme and probably an extreme that the Cardinals don't necessarily have to to go to. Let me backtrack really quick because Dave had mentioned the thought of the Angels trading Mike Trout as well. Alex Rodriguez brought that up uh, on Fox. He thought the Angels could trade both Trout and Otani. So. What do you think about that? Like, what do you think about, hey, like, one, what does it say if you're trading just one of those players away? But if you kind of do a full concession, and I know it sounds ridiculous in terms of, hey, selling to your fan base that we need to trade these two superstars away to get a full package that could set us back for contention for the next, you know, five to 10 years, create that balance where you need a full team to contend at a certain level. Do you think that's more realistic than the angels just trading one away? I, I think they missed the window. You know, the, the time to make that trade would have been last year. You know, it's it, some people feel for both like guys. Yeah. For both guys. Exactly. Um, some people feel like Mike Trout might be beginning the decline phase of his career. He still owed a lot of money. The angels in order to get some prospects, full value back in a deal would probably have to pay down some of that contract in order to get a better return uh, moving back. We've seen that sort of as a trend in recent trades. Uh, I'm not sure. I think they kind of missed the window. I, I, if you look at Artie Moreno, the owner, and just the way the sale of the franchise was handled, you see the flip-flopping going on. And that's the whole decision-making with, the, with uh, the Angels for several years now. He really cares. He spent money out there. But at the same time, there's sort of this back and forth mentality there about making up your mind which direction to go. 
uh, including selling the franchise. He had several offers out there after putting the, the team on, on the market and then changed his mind, according to him, that he wanted to stay in the game, so to speak. So that's all you need to really look at to, to understand the mentality behind the Angels and their their, their sort of decision-making process. So, yeah, could you trade Mike Trout? Yeah, would a lot of teams love to have Mike Trout? Yeah, but the, he'd have to pay down some of that contract in order to get some some top prospects back in return. After this season, Trout has seven years left on his deal at a little over $37 million per year. And look, he's one of the greatest players of all time, but he turns 32 in a couple of weeks and he's already started to have some of these, you know, these injuries that prop up. And, you know, even this, the, uh, you know, the hand injury, you say that's a little bit of a freak thing that could happen to anyone. But the long-term prognosis for a lot of guys who have those handmade injuries is not that great. And it could be the start of a, a significant loss of power. And hopefully that's not the case with Trout, but it's something that would obviously be in the backs of the minds of any prospective team looking to trade for him. Plus the, the weight of the contract means that you wouldn't really be getting back a, a franchise altering haul of prospects, unless you're already paying down some of the money yourself, which means you're not really alleviating a lot of the salary issue, which makes it less palatable to the franchise and to the fan base. I don't see how you can do it. Yeah. Trout's health at the moment probably, you know, really supports David's claim that they missed the boat. Last year was the year to do it for both players. Otani, at last year's trade deadline, a year and a half away from free agency. A team could have had him for two Octobers. And Trout, again, the injury is starting to pile up. Now it's a pattern. So last year, obviously, uh, less of a pattern and less in which you could, uh, less on grounds in which you could maybe deal that contract away. Uh, something else that we found out during All-Star Week, guys, the MLB Players Association stated that it would like a slightly longer pitch clock come postseason time. Are you for or against them adding a couple of seconds onto the pitch clock? I have no problem with that. I mean, we've heard that, you know, when we do our manager's visits on Sunday Night Baseball, almost universally, a lot of the managers would like it to be more uniform either 20 seconds across the board or something that that an internal time clock for the players would be easier to manage, so to speak. And the last thing also we want to see in postseason, some sort of infraction impacting the end of a game. You know, we, we need to avoid that at all costs, especially in the first year of these rules. You know, in uh, a deciding game, bases loaded, game five, game seven, something happens, an infraction impacts the call. You can't, we can't have that. You just cannot allow that to happen. So if you need to add five seconds or whatever you need to add uh, or to, to make it more uniform, I'm in favor of at least talking about it. And this is going to be a real test on the cooperation between the Players Association and central office and management, Rob Manfred, the commissioner. If they can work together and get an agreement here, that bodes well for the future moving forward as these guys start to build momentum for – you know, just a working agreement for the next collective bargaining agreement on down the road in a few years. Look, if it's something that is uh, agreed to and, and everyone's on board, who am I to stop it at the same time? If it ain't broke, don't try and fix it. I don't I think this has been much smoother than all of us really could have thought going into the season. 
even for a pitch clock zealot like me, I was expecting a little bit of chaos in April and we never really got it. And uh, timer violations have been around a half of a violation per game or to put in, in a normal way, manner of speaking, you're basically every other game, there's one. And you're watching a game. It's it's like it's nothing. You don't even really reckon. Oh, that was a the, the pitcher took too long to warm up to start the inning. Oh, he started the first batters a one count. And you don't even really notice and you move on. Now, the doomsday scenario of, you know, bases loaded in the ninth inning of a playoff game and then something goes haywire. And, and then next thing you know, it's a violation or the pitcher's trying to rush to avoid a violation and he balks or whatever that that could be chaotic. But I think as far as the timer goes, I, I don't think you need to change it. I think it's been pretty smooth the way it's been set. Yeah, I'm actually interested in the the second half of David's point there because I think it's fine the way it is. But is this a way? Is you know is this a a way to kind of keep things smooth, smooth it over, agree to it now if you're you know coming from the league standpoint to give yourself a little bit of room, keep things peaceful uh, in terms of the next agreement coming up. Is that something that you want to do for the postseason? Like, uh, hey. You know, can you give a little bit back? You know, is that something that the, that the league wants to ask itself uh, for these negotiations for the long-term benefit down the road of just like keeping the peace with, with the players association overall though, on, on the surface uh, I would say, no, like, I don't want to give that any, I don't want to give any of it back right now from a fan standpoint. I'm liking what I'm seeing. Um, I'm sure hitters don't want to have the pitchers get some extra time back because uh, yeah, it probably benefits both parties, but it it helps the pitchers more if there's obviously more time on something called the pitch clock. So uh, I, I like where it's at right now, but I, yeah, I do wonder if the league thinks about it now. Like, hey, give a couple seconds here uh, in the postseason, and that gives us some some leverage maybe in the bank moving forward with uh, with a working agreement down the road. Something to keep an eye on there. Let's focus on the Yankees, guys. Disappointing first half. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Uh, I think a lot of fans were expecting more, and especially from the hitting. A lot of players in this lineup just not performing, not meeting expectations. It's nothing new. When you take a look at the standings in the American League East and specifically run differential, every team has a positive run differential in the East. The Yankees have the lowest run differential at plus 20. The offense near the bottom in a lot of common offensive statistical categories. The Yankees see this. They admitted something needed to be changed because they did dismiss Dylan Lawson after their final game before the All-Star break. We now know that Sean Casey will be in the Yankee dugout come Friday when they open up their second half against the Rockies in Colorado. It's a guy with no previous coaching experience. He does have the bona fide major league track record as a former player and a decorated former player at that. I'm wondering at this point in the season, mid-July, with a coach with no prior coaching experience, what is the biggest and the quickest way Sean Casey can make an impact on this Yankees coaching staff? Well, if you've never met Sean Casey, then you probably you don't realize, but he is the ultimate attitude adjustment. I mean, his nickname is the mayor. And if you've ever heard him talk, how excitable he is, how he lights up a room, uh, A-type personality, always upbeat. This is this is just an attitude adjustment. You know, it'll take him a while to get 
sort of calibrated to to each individual player and what their tendencies are and what they like. But I guarantee you from day one, he's going to light that room up when he walks in. He's just one of the greatest, nicest guys you'll ever want to meet in the game. Everywhere he's gone, he's just made friends and made good impressions. Uh, he, he just is uh, the energizer bunny, too. You know, he just is, is just relentless in his positive, upbeat nature, the way he communicates, the way he delivers things. And really, I've always said this. I think coaching is a lot about saying the same things uh, different ways. You know, we, we've all heard coach coach speak before. You know, we, we even back to Little League, you know, you've, you've heard certain phrases that stick with you throughout the entire throughout your entire, you know, career as you're a player and you hear it from coaches all the time. But a lot of times it's just a light bulb effect you're looking for as a player from a concept that's delivered from a different person, a different way. And that's what Sean Casey can present. Just an upbeat confidence builder, light up the room. The mayor is now in the, in the house. I mean, that's what they're looking for there is, is, is like a personality adjustment, you know, for, for, for the coaching staff and for the hitters walking in that room. He's beloved. He's just the greatest guy. He really is. And, uh, they're going to love this guy. Uh, there's just no two ways about it. A great hitter in his own right. And I, it shows you, too, that people watch guys. People, You can get hired from, from being in the media, right? This is a guy who gave uh, hitting lessons on, on the MLB network. Somebody was watching. Brian Cashman watches the MLB network. They watch some some of his breakdowns, and they like what they heard. So you never know where, where, where you're going to be seen. I think you nailed it, Coney, because so much of – coaching at the big league level is about leadership and managing people and managing personalities. You go up and down these organizations, you go all 30 teams, a hitting coach, a pitching coach, a lot of the, the philosophies are going to be similar or the same. A lot of the, you know, the, the mechanical and technical expertise and, 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 you know, guiding that you're going to do is, is going to be pretty similar, but the biggest thing, whether you're a manager, a hitting coach, a pitching coach, is dealing with the people in the room and being a, a people leader. And I don't know Jean Casey, but even going back to his playing career, you never heard anything but positive things about him. So, well, uh, let's see. Give him a shot. And I think there'll be some regression to the mean in a good way for the Yankee offense. It's almost like they have nowhere to go but up if you look at them being in the bottom five of a lot of different offensive categories from the moment Aaron judge went down before the judge injury. They were in the top seven or eight records in major league baseball. They were a top 10 offense in everything. But then when judge goes down, the offense cratered with that. But I think a lot of that was, uh, it, there's nowhere to go, but, up, and there's a little bit of uh, regression coming. How long is Anthony Rizzo going to go without hitting a home run, et cetera. So I think this is a, a good hire, and and starting off the the first weekend in, in Coors Field isn't uh, isn't a bad place for an offense to start. Yeah, smooth landing spot there, smooth landing spot for arrival for Sean Casey. And yeah, I don't I don't know Sean Casey that that well. Uh, I think I met him a, cu a couple of times. He did have a, a bar in Hoboken at one point, um, and he bought me a beer there. So that's that that hey that was the first time i met him so yeah the mayor nickname it sticks uh you know sean casey uh, a, a different messenger and i remember uh back on sunday when brian cashman was holding his zoom zoom session about just making this change and that was pretty much the focal point of it a different messenger is needed by all accounts 
if you're working in you know the baseball world, you know about Sean Casey. You know uh, how uh, how affable of a human he he is, and and you don't get the nickname like the mayor, you know, for no reason. So uh, I'm interested to see how he communicates and relates to some of the players currently in this dugout. But that leads me to I, I guess the next point here because a lot of people say, well, look, Sean Casey is not a white knight coming in on his horse to save the Yankees season like that. It's just not realistic. The players obviously have to fix what they know is wrong. I mean, most of them know what they're, you know, what what the cause is for their struggles here. So it's the personnel that's in the lineup that needs to turn it around. I'm curious how patient can the Yankees at this point afford to be before now making changes on the field? And there are some examples I could give you. I'm sure there are examples, you know, the same ones that you're thinking of. But how long before we see actual changes to the on-field personnel? Well, the problem is, is Aaron Judge's injury. And the Yankees are starved for power at this point because Aaron's out of the lineup for obvious reasons. And as James said, uh, Rizzo's uh, power power uh, outage over the last several games or last month or so probably going to get it going again. I mean, who's going to bet against Rizzo? I'm not going to bet against him. But nonetheless, if you're thinking about making a change like an Oswaldo Peraza and bringing him up to play third base, that kind of a move works because he's an all-around ball player, right? He's a good def- defender, good base runner, maybe a little bit of pop in his bat. But he's not hes not a guy that's going to fill that power outage because Aaron Judge is out of the, out of the lineup because of an injury. So I think the – the Yankees need somebody like a Josh Donaldson to provide power or at least the potential to provide power before they pull that plug. Now, maybe if Aaron judge comes back and then you want a more well-rounded team, as I said, somebody who has encompasses all those skills that Peraza does, then maybe you consider a move like that. But until then, until after the trade deadline, until after we know what's happening with Aaron judge, I, I don't see the Yankees pulling the plug, say, you know, uh, pulling the plug on Josh Donaldson, or giving up on DJ LeMahieu as your everyday third baseman and bringing Peraza up to play third base. I don't see that happening until much further down the road and until we get a better uh, better idea of how long Aaron Judge is really going to be out. Well, if Judge is going to be out for most of the rest of the season, which we don't know, but if that does happen, then there's very little that you could do to even make this passable to begin with, right? So it hinges on him and he's the only real impact guy that could jump onto the team. There isn't a, you know, Juan Soto is at the, is available at the deadline. Like last year, what, what big star hitter is out there that can turn, that can parachute in and save the offense and take over in left field or take over at third base. I don't know if there's that guy this year. So that's the thing that sticks with me here. The Yankees have to have some type of idea of when they could expect Aaron Judge to come back and he is making slight progress as we move along here but if they think that it's going to be another month plus before Aaron Judge comes back if we're looking at August here don't you think like they have to be proactive because of what we're seeing it's not getting much better so it's kind of like a catch-22 they they can't do much until they wait around for that power from Judge to return but if it is actually a longer absence and it could be into August, could they really afford to have enough time to kind of stay the course here with with the personnel? That kind of makes me believe, oh, maybe he is returning sooner rather than later. Maybe 
it won't be August. Maybe it'll actually be at some point in July. It kind of just makes your, your, you know, your wheels spin in your head and like what the actual timeline could be. We don't know. They're playing it close to the vest. Is that why? Or, you know, do they have a better idea? Not sure. All, all valid questions. Yes. I mean, they, that shows you how the, the complexity of right. This, 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 this overall picture that the team organ, the teams and organizations and general managers have to take into account. It's not only just short-term, it's long-term too. The long-term fit moving on down the road. I, I still say that the Yankees pitching and their bullpen in particular has really saved them this year. The need the Yankees have really and the shortage they have is really in the outfield situation. You know, unless you believe that somebody like an Estevan Floreal can come up and help you, they've never shown that they believe that he's the guy they're the answer because of his strikeout rate. Jason Dominguez in double A's not ready yet. And there'd be, be a lot to ask of him to call him up in the second half of the season and try to play left field every day. The Yankees need outfielders. There's just no two ways about it. And the injuries that they've had has, has really shown that. And they have some decisions to make with Harrison Bader. Is he going to be signed long-term or not? That's going to factor into their decision-making if they try to make a, a deal for an outfielder at the trade deadline coming up. Now that the major league draft is over, over now we really focus in on the trade deadline and what are the Yankees' needs and what do they see their their outfield in the future? You know, what is going to be the Yankees' outfield next year, much less for the second half of this year? And I think it's going to be interesting to see if they zero in on finding a left fielder, finding an, another outfielder, and then kind of figuring out what to do around the fringes of, of the team in terms of offensively, how to get more offense interjected in there. And it's still going to come down to the guys who are already here. Anthony Rizzo. Giancarlo Stanton. This is these are the guys that the team is built around. And when even when Judge was here with these guys last year, they were one of the best offenses in the game. And you you can't just swap out Rizzo and Stanton and bring in someone else and say these guys are going to be better. You you need these hitters to play up to what they're usually doing. And even for someone like Josh Donaldson who's struggling and and he's really in the crosshairs with the fan base, he's 14th on the team this year in plate appearances. He's not. He's not single-handedly submarining the team. There, this is a this is a, 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 a whole lot of players who have track records who aren't hitting, like DJ LeMahieu. And if you were more confident in DJ LeMahieu's ability to hold down and be an everyday third baseman, maybe you'd feel a little more comfortable moving on from Donaldson. But they have a lot of questions here. Yeah, Josh Donaldson only has like hundred at bats. We realize like he he reached hundred at bats. I think the last day of the season before the all-star break like that that series finale against the cubs is when he actually reached 100 plate appearances that that's not a lot at all i'm not saying that that's an excuse for him at all but that's really not a, a large sample for him uh in, in terms of the moves that you're, you're looking for again none of them are going to be involving names like james just said rizzo stanton and lemayhu those three aren't going anywhere they need to figure it out they need to step it up uh, here in the second half. So it's those fringe moves that could be made. Maybe a change at third base. Maybe you go out and trade for a left fielder. It's uh, going to come down to the next couple of weeks. Do, do you guys think that as we get more and more into trade series season, you, I mean, you'd have to be blind to realize that the Yankees uh, pitching staff is what's really holding them afloat here. In, in this head above water mode at the moment, it's been terrific. Do you think 
they need to make an addition because I feel like teams are always looking for pitching, right? The Yankees are no different. Do they add to their already lethal bullpen? Do they shore up the back of the rotation? I don't know what candidates are out there because it seems like there are more and more teams who believe that they're still in contention, but do they even have to focus on adding pitching as we approach the trade deadline? I kind of look at it the other way around. <clears throat> That's their surplus, mm-hmm. including thinking about John, you know, Jonathan Lewisaga coming back at some point before the year's over. Uh, that might be the the place where they they trade from in order to get some offense back, you know, somewhere in there in their pitching staff. And that's assuming, obviously, that, you know, that Rodon's going to pitch well in the second half, that he's ready to go, that Nestor Cortez is going to come back as well. So, <clears throat> to me, I kind of look at that overall pitching mosaic as something that, that that's, that's a strength, that the Yankees are going to have to give up something in their pitching depth in order to bring back some offense and probably an outfielder somewhere else. The one so my answer is no, probably not. Unless unless there's an opportunity out there for somebody they've read, you know, their their analytics department find somebody undervalued that that they can bring in on the cheap, you know, similar to what they did with Clay Holmes. Right. Clay Holmes, Scott F. Ross, something similar to that. Yeah. They absolutely have a surplus of pitching, but I would always be reticent about trading off of the big league team to get something for the big league team. So if you trade, you get, you could trade a pitcher or pitchers to try and shore up the offense, but then you're trading value from one spot and then trying to make up for it in another spot. And then one pitching injury and then, Oh wait, now we, we need that guy. We just traded away, but you could always dip into the farm system. There are, there are ways to make moves. I, I think that the you lean into the strength. So if you have eight, relievers that you trust you just you just ride that out and they're they're gonna they might have to rely on those guys more as the season goes on if the offense doesn't pull out of their funk this is a fourth place team at the moment guys but there are plenty of reasons to watch the yankees right out of the all-star break and as we get more toward the trade deadline it is going to be very interesting over the next couple of weeks That is going to do it for this episode, everybody. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel so you do not miss a beat of what we're streaming each and every week. David, really quick, where are you at for Sunday Night Baseball? Oh, we're back out in Anaheim. Going to go see Mr. Otani. So it should be be a good show out there. I mean, and then the Yankees come into L.A., so I'm going to be in L.A. for the whole week. Beautiful. Uh, But it's uh, Astros and Angels. Okay. Going to see Houston and... Anaheim and then the Yankees at the Angels all week long. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of fly West for a week. David Cohn from Montauk to the sunny beaches of, of Southern California. Can't beat it. Obviously doing a lot of work in between Uh, that. That's an awesome way to start the second half. Yeah. Yankees have the Rockies. Yankees have the Angels. David has the Angels and Shohei Otani this week on Sunday Night Baseball. Don't miss it there. Again, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Don't miss a beat of what we're streaming each week. For David Cohn, for James Smythe, for our outstanding producer, Dan Work. this is Justin Shackle. We will talk to you next week on Tome of the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn, a production of John Boy Media. Take care, everybody.